You are listening to Seattle Sports Saturday with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're just joining us, maybe anticipating Mariners baseball today, but it's postponed till tomorrow. Mariners game got rained out, but uh, there's always there's always tomorrow. That's the beauty of baseball. There is always tomorrow. That's part of why we love it so much. You can never get too high or too low because you know it'll be here for the next eight and a half months. I love it. I cannot wait. It's, it's here. I, I, you know who else I don't think can wait is probably anybody involved with the Astros organization, the Red Sox organization, really Major League Baseball so that we, you know, I guess move past this. But there is still so much to unpack with the banging scheme and all the sign-stealing scandals. I mean, we, we're still awaiting the Red Sox punishment, which is reportedly going to happen sometime this next week, which may have been the reasoning behind David Ortiz's comments yesterday mm-hmm. about Mike Fires. We'll dig into that sound because, yes, Big yeah. Poppy coming out with some harsh words against yeah. Mike Fires, and, and we'll discuss. We will. That's coming up in about 10 to 15 minutes from now. But uh, as we do with each of the first two hours, we give you our big three. Number one. Well, it has been the storyline in baseball. Spring training games kicking off yesterday. But this is the topic of conversation that is not going away anytime soon. At the moment, or one week ago, we were sitting in here talking about Carlos Correa's recent interview with The Athletic. And that's when we found out about Tattoo Gate and Jose Altuve's uh, bad tattoo in place, the whole theory that he didn't want his jersey ripped off in 2017 at the end of the uh, ALCS because it was a bad tattoo on his Ooh. collarbone. So that was that that was that day's entertainment. The next day, Rob Manfred sat down with ESPN for a 45-minute in-depth interview talking about the scandal in which he seemed to stick his foot in his mouth over and over again. He referred to the commissioner's trophy as a piece of metal. And also explained that one of the big reasons for not punishing the Astros was he felt that because of a failure by the Astros front office, Jeff Lunau and A.J. Hinch included in this, the players weren't properly informed. They didn't receive the memorandum that he sent back in January of 2017 informing them of how not to cheat. Huh? Because you need that outline for you very specifically what? so you know how not to cheat. That he was afraid this would lead to MLB PA grievances that they could not win. And he is a labor attorney. That's his background. So it's still, it was mind-boggling to hear him say that. You felt that you didn't inform people on how best not to cheat, and that's why we're not punishing them? Don't they still have to sign a code of ethics? Isn't that a part of what we hear a lot in the NFL? Because you cannot be formally charged with crimes or things outside of the sport. But if you break the code of ethics in Goodell's mind, then you can still receive a suspension, receive a fine. Isn't that true in baseball as well? So I looked it up. Rule 21, which is, by the way, posted in every single clubhouse in English and Spanish. Of course it is. It is about misconduct. And basically anything that you do that is not in the best interest of baseball is punishable by the commissioner. So I found that to be wholly uh, crazy that Manfred would come out and say that. It also led to the Twitter hashtag FireManfred. What's next for baseball? Is this actually good for baseball? Jeff Passan had that take that this might actually bring it an unprecedented level of interest this season. We'll discuss more at 10.15 a.m. Number two. 
Well, in a much less controversy, <laughs> still a controversy, Some. the NBA Some. had their All-Star weekend this last weekend in Chicago on Saturday night. We had a controversy in the slam dunk contest. Derek Jones Jr. took home the took home the title over crowd favorite Aaron Gordon. This, this marks the second time in Gordon's dunk contest history he's lost in controversial fashion. In the last four seasons, losing to Zach Levine in 2016 under similar circumstances. I'm a little biased. Bear down, Aaron Gordon. <laughs> As for the game itself, some interesting tweaks made it the most competitive All-Star game we've seen in a long time. Team LeBron defeating Team Giannis, but the lasting image of the weekend was the actual hustle and competitiveness throughout the game itself. A lot of that spurred on by what's called the Elam ending that the NBA adopted just one time only. Uh, should it become permanent for regular season games, definitely made for a dramatic finish to the game. Maybe not yet, but it was a welcome addition to the All-Star Game and All-Star Game weekend. And then also uh, the many, many tributes to the late Kobe Bryant, uh, both teams wearing either jersey number 2 or 24 in honor of his daughter Gigi and in honor of the Mamba. Uh, also uh, in Kobe Bryant news, uh, on Monday of next week, they will hold a memorial service at Staples Center for him and his daughter. Uh, there should be plenty of names in attendance for that, uh, and it'll be L.A.'s final time uh, to really bid adieu and, and give tribute to the late, great Kobe Bryant. Number three. Well, are the NFL and the Players Association about to reach labor peace sometime within the next couple of few days we heard the owner's proposal the new cba floated this week which included a brand new postseason playoff structure also a 17 game season proposal that latter portion of being a sticking point with players you heard some sound off vocally online including tyler lockett including jj watt who came out and said that's a hard no that's a a hard pass for me the 32 player reps will meet on tuesday of this week to vote on the cba proposal But one of the main sticking points, as I mentioned, proper compensation for the players in a 17-game season. I believe it would bump up to 48.5% of the pie of the share. But players maybe want a little bit more of that. Why are we making, why is it not a 50-50 split here? Also waiting to see probably on what the new television contracts will look like and how lucrative those will be because we are in a new era of streaming when it's not no longer just the standard television broadcast. So this could be, we're talking about uh, an unprecedented amount of money when it comes to those deals. The NFLPA Executive Committee, led by President Eric Winston, has approved the CBA proposal, but the players and player reps are reportedly not all in agreement. Two-thirds of the player reps would need to approve the proposal for it to reach a player vote where only a simple majority would be needed for approval. So we're still waiting on that. No electoral college involved. No, no. So there's hope. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the NFL, the CBA stuff, it is, I think for fans, you kind of wonder, like, why should I care about this? I know. It all sounds like a bunch of legal jargon sometimes, and we're going to tell you. Yeah, we will tell you. Boil That's coming down. up in this hour at about 1045 today. Why should NFL fans care about these CBA negotiations there are a lot of wrinkles thrown into this negotiation. Obviously, they don't have to agree to anything right now, but it, it appears as though they want to get something done before it becomes sort of a doomsday scenario mm-hmm. because I think they have an entire year before this would be sort of in a lockout scenario. Um, but maybe they do get something done. But 
from the sound of it, you know, they were supposed to have a vote yesterday between the player reps. That didn't happen. That got pushed back to Tuesday. I believe they're all going to meet in Indianapolis, the site of the combine, in order to hash this out, maybe get something done. Another wrinkle is that Eric Winston, the NFLPA president, his term is up in March, and the two people jockeying for that job, Russell Okung and Richard Sherman, both former Seahawks, both people very well-known in this town. And well-respected. Yeah, very well-respected. They've got kind of two different, I guess, like platforms in how they want to be the president. I, I believe, as John Clayton has said a couple of times, that Richard Sherman, I think, is the favorite to succeed Eric Winston in that role. Um, so just a lot of moving parts in this. Maybe something gets done on Tuesday. Who knows? But, um, yeah, the NFL, I think we're all rooting for labor peace, but also we're rooting for everybody to get what they want in all this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for that to happen, who knows? More so the players, right? Let's yes. be honest. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, billionaires, they kind of got a lot already. Don't really – it's not a ton of empathy that they inspire a lot of no. times. But, yeah, the players in in this instant – I know that a big a sticking point for them, too, is, is safety and, and Richard yes. Sherman calling out the league for it being somewhat hypocritical to propose the 17-game season, which, to be honest in my mind, because now you've introduced either taking away a home game or a neutral site game into the mix, which I don't know how that's going to work mm-hmm. logistically, but to me that signifies that you're really using it as a stepping stone to get to 18 games a season. And yeah, that, to me, would be ludicrous. That's a bit much. That's a, that's a lot. Some honorable mentions in this hour's Big Three. Like we said, the NFL Combine starts tomorrow in Indianapolis. I believe it's the quarterbacks, wide receivers, and tight ends that get going first. So, I mean, the, the flashiest players let's out go. there. Let's let's see those arms. Jacob Eason, he'll be throwing. Anthony Gordon, I believe, will also be throwing. Or at least they'll be in attendance at the mm-hmm. Combine. Who knows who's going to be throwing or not. Um, in the college ranks, Colorado's still looking for somebody to take that job. Eric Bieniemy rumored to not have interest in that job, so it looks like he'll be returning to the Chiefs uh, as their offensive coordinator. And then in college basketball right now... Give him now, a head coaching job in the NFL. Dude, he can he can coach. Let's go. I'm, I'm still surprised he is available. In college basketball right now, really big matchup going on between two potential number one seeds. Kansas at Baylor right now, number three Kansas, number one Baylor. The Jayhawks have a 34-31 lead in the second half, 19 minutes to go. In that one. And then also today, 40 years ago, the way it gets talked about, it still feels as though this was recent, but 40 years ago, the miracle on ice happened. I mean, there may not be a bigger sporting event ever. And a better call, a better call no, to go along everything with Everything it. about it like, is just so historic. And that uh, is going to inspire. Us at 10.30 for recess, sort of the most culturally impactful sports games ever. Does, does any game even come close to sniffing what the Miracle on Ice has become in the 40 years since it happened in Lake Placid? We'll get into that. If you have up. thoughts, text in 710-710, yeah. Coors Light text sign. But coming up next, man, Roger Goodell, he had himself a great week and he <laughs> owes it all to Rob Manfred. We'll <laughs> tell you why. Coming up next, Seattle Sports Saturday, 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. You ever had a bad week and wish you could just blame it on somebody else and not take any sort of responsibility for it? It's kind of what Rob Manfred had this week. 
Except it's more like a month or a couple of months. Yeah, it's been an off season to forget for him and Eesh. for Major League Baseball because this all could have been prevented mm-hmm. a long time ago. Because this is 2020. All these stories are about the 2017 season, which was three years ago. And nothing happened then. Nothing happened in 2018. Nothing happened in 2019. It wasn't until Mike Fires, Oakland A's pitcher, said something this offseason around, what was it, December, January mm-hmm. of of this year to where we are now. And Major League Baseball has found themselves trying to put out fires wherever they are. No and, pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. And a, and a big part of it, too, is that Mike Fires had to do this. It came to that point, despite the fact that several teams had suspicions of this, knew it was going on, accused teams of doing it in both passive and some more aggressive ways. Bob Melvin came out of the athletics or of the like the athletics, the team and talked about how they had reported or formally complained about this before fires uh, before fires did. What was it back in like? 2016 even yeah. like before before he even reported it so this is you've heard reports of this going on that was one of the things Manfred addressed in his sit-down interview with ESPN he said well you need to know that sometimes these formal complaints there's not a lot of facts to go along with it but then we are in a situation years later where Mike Fires has to be the one to come out and I mean in a sense fall on the sword yeah because you have the David Ortiz's of the world then calling him a snitch, which seemed to be, at least at first, a really popular sentiment. But it should never have to get to that position because your governing body, your commissioner, whether he is just a straw dog for the owners or not, should still uphold the integrity of the game. And it shouldn't come to this place where a, a single person has to come out and speak against the team. And it's pretty obvious that he did not uphold the integrity of the game. He tried to shush it away. He tried to hide it behind a curtain and say... Send some memorandums. Yeah, and say, we have we have wiped our hands clean of this. It is no longer our fault. It is entirely in the hands of these teams out there. But no, like you could have acted a lot more aggressively in the moment to where this didn't become what it has become, what it has morphed into. And this is a story that you know, is not going to go away anytime soon. We hear more and more revelations about it. Every single day where, you know, you've got stories like last week with Carlos Correa saying that Jose Altuve had a tattoo and that's why he didn't want to take his shirt off. And everybody's like, well, does he really have a tattoo? Turns out he does. Like, Mm -hmm. there's just weird stories about this that it's like, did Major League Baseball really investigate this thoroughly? Did they really get to the bottom of this? And then on top of that, you're granting immunity to the players in directly involved in this even though it was it was their idea they executed it despite AJ Hinch being pretty vehement about hey guys stop it knock it smash off monitors to make you stop it and that didn't even that didn't stop him at all you, they just, you know you just call somebody up in the uh, operations department and say hey we need a new TV monitor they're going to get that for the players yeah manfred saying that uh, a reason that he felt that he didn't want to punish the players well a he didn't want to set precedent uh, that when it didn't already exist, and B, he felt this was a failing by management, by Jeff Lunell and by A.J. Hinch, because he sent this memorandum in 2017 saying, we know certain things are going on, cease and desist from that, and that the players didn't ever receive that memorandum. 
Therefore, they didn't know that cheating was wrong, essentially. I want to play you this piece of sound. Hopefully uh, this works. But Manfred talking about not wanting to punish the players because he was afraid of MLBPA grievances following that. Secondly, we had a problem with the players in this case. Among the things that the Astros um, failed at was after the Yankee-Red Sox decision. I put the clubs on notice as to what exactly the rules were and how they were going to be treated going forward. Among the other failures of that organization, that information never made its way to the players. How is that so, possible? Well, so they just didn't do it. I mean, it's in my report. They, the the, the um, memorandum went to the general manager, and then nothing was done from the GM down. Um, so we knew if we had disciplined the players, in all likelihood, we were going to have grievances and grievances that we were going to lose on the basis that we never properly informed them of the rules. So given those two things, number one, I knew where or I, I, I'm certain where the responsibility should lay in the first instance. And um, given the fact that we didn't think we could make discipline stick with the players, we made the decision we made. Having said that, I understand the reaction. Yeah, I, I mean, the players, um, some of them in a more articulate way than others, have said, admitted they did the wrong thing. And I understand that people want to see them punished for that. And in a perfect world, they would have been punished. You couldn't, like... Uh make a copy of that memorandum and send it to everybody's house yeah. just to, like, cover your bases. You know, you sent one email to the GM. You couldn't say like, liability oh, yeah. purposes. I'm going to send this to every single player. I've done all I can do here. Yeah. It's, Wash my hands. It's not my fault anymore. <laughs> oh, it's come on, Rob Manfred. Like, how dumb do you think baseball fans are? How dumb do you think your players are and the managers are in this league? Like, the, the blood is ultimately on the hands of the Astros and it also is in the it's on the hands of Major League Baseball for allowing it to keep going because why on earth did it have to take somebody going public with this before Major League Baseball finally stepped in if Mike Fires hadn't have said what he said none of this would have come to light it would have continued to be this don't ask don't tell don't say anything about it and meanwhile, players and teams like the Mariners, like the Rangers, like the Angels and the A's, teams that have to go up against the Astros 19 times a season, they would continue to get their bell rung every single night. And Major League Baseball just sitting on their hands saying, well, we sent you a memo. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we've done all we can do here. We covered our bases. And, yeah, if the, if the whole – idea of this was you're a supposed to be protecting the game protecting the integrity of the game but also the players the individual players mike fires now receiving death threats uh josh reddick also admitting that he's received death threats and he's not the only astros players to have done so which first of all if if you're in that place in your life where you you are sending a death threat to anyone about anything yeah uh, that is concerning but over sports over something like this in sports is so ridiculous. But, Rob Manfred, this is also on you, too, because now you have not protected even the safety and the well-being of your players. That's concerning. And then you've also got a very well-known former player taking shots at Mike Fires this week, David Ortiz, calling Mike Fires a snitch. I, I, I'm mad at uh, uh, this guy, the pitcher that came out talking about it, and let me tell you why. 
oh, after you make your money, after you get your ring, you decide to talk about it? Why don't you talk about it during the season when it was going on? Why, why, why you didn't say, I don't want to be no part of Oh, now. So you look like a snitch. You know what I mean? Why you got to talk about it after? Why you, that's, that's my problem, you know. Why, why nobody say anything while it was going on? Two problems because, well, A, I don't think you should be commenting on this since you have any uh, Since he's got so many ties to the Red Sox who are about to get the hammer dropped. Um, Just as Jessica Mendoza found that out when she made a comment with ties to Carlos Beltran and the Mets. But B, because of this very thing, maybe because he was scared of this very reaction of being called a snitch, why would he have any motivation to come out while it's happening? And that is the excuse that a lot of Astros players used as well. They said, well, we were kind of caught up in it and group think and we're, you know, starstruck by the the players that were leading this. And it it's it is a it's a psychological wonder when you do get caught in sort of a vacuum in a group think situation. But probably because they're scared of repercussions like this, of the person who does tell the truth is labeled a snitch. I, I think one of the most frustrating things to come from this is you look across the major sports leagues and the leadership in all of those leagues, maybe the NBA to a lesser extent, but all like Manfred, Goodell, Gary Bettman, even Larry Scott on a, on a collegiate level here in the Pac-12, it none of them operate with like good intentions in mind. None of them do all that is within their power to create a better league and to create a better you know league for the players and for the audience watching. And it really goes to show like who these guys have it out for, and it's it's the owners because they're employed mm-hmm. by the owners. And maybe Rob Manfred didn't want to punish the Astros so harshly because of. You know, Jim Crane, maybe that's his guy. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And it, it re- you really kind of see who these people work for. And, you know, it just it leaves such a bad taste in your mouth as a sports fan because it's like this league is suffering mm-hmm. in a big way because of the failure of so many people at the very, very top. Yeah. In that essence that you wish that office was independent, yeah. that it, it operated on its own, whether it was like an elected official or just appointed by someone else so that they had the actual interests of their given sport in mind when making these decisions, not their own job retention, not just the fact that they want to keep getting paid and they, they want to keep their job, but actually making decisions in the best interest of their sport. Coming up in this hour, we've got more talk about the CBA negotiations. Why should we as fans care about what's going on between the NFL and their players association? That's coming up. About 1045, but up next, it is 40 years to the day the Miracle on Ice happened. So what are the most culturally impactful sports games ever? Not just moments. We're talking about games coming up next here, Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Why should we care about the NFL's CBA negotiations? That's coming up in about 15 minutes from now. Also in the 11 o'clock hour, are the Seahawks a patchwork team or are they building for longer-term success? We'll get into that a half hour from now. Also, Dragons, Renegades coming up today, 2 p.m. CenturyLink Field. A whole group of us from 710, we're going to be down there again. I'll be there this time. 
Liddy, you're going to be there. Are you Let's roaming go. the sidelines? Roaming today? the sidelines. Maura Dooley, she'll be there. As Shout well. out. But yeah, the 710 crew, uh, always fun. And then yeah. Brock Heward. Yeah, he'll be on the Fox on the broadcast. broadcast. He may be doing something else. Yeah, we'll see. I, we'll I don't see. know. Heard, heard some rumors. <laughs> I don't know what those are all about. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of great stuff coming up today here uh, in the city of Seattle. No Mariners game, though, today that got rained out. But uh, you look at this day on the sports calendar and you know february 22nd doesn't really resonate with a lot of people it's just another day and sort of a a dead period i guess Mm -hmm. in the sports calendar you're between football and baseball season you're gearing up for march madness you're getting ready Mm -hmm. for nba playoffs and hockey playoffs down the line but you're kind of yeah it is a weird it's a limbo of sorts but 40 years ago today maybe the most culturally impactful sports game of all time happened. We're, of course, talking about the miracle on ice between the United States and the Soviet Union. 1980 Winter Olympics, Lake Placid, New York. We all know the key figures in this, the the arena, the you know, the head coach Herb Brooks, just how how daunting that Soviet team was and for this group of college kids to come out there and beat which was at the time regarded as the best team in the world, not just national team, but just other team because they had beat a team I think it was NHL All Stars a couple weeks beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know it, it was just an insane, insane amount of just luck needed and also skill because they were so well conditioned to beat the Soviet team that night. But the exhibition match that happened at Madison Square Garden like two weeks before, it's like ten to one, ten to three, ten to three, ten to three. Okay. But still, I mean, might as well be ten to one in yeah. that instance. And. Yeah, and the and the call, too, that we know here in Seattle almost better than anyone what a legendary voice can do to bring a moment in sports alive. There's a reason we listen to the 95 slide uh, <laughs> all, all the time, all the time, because the the voice of someone narrating a moment like that, I think especially just on whether it's on TV or radio, can paint a visual that goes beyond what you're even seeing with your eyes. And Al Michaels, 35 at the time, young Ooh. Al Michaels, spry Al Michaels. Just a baby. Who, by the way, had called only one hockey game in his career before getting this opportunity. Uh, had been a lot on baseball, I think, broadcasts up until that point. He said, well, I knew what I knew what icing was. I knew what offside was, and that's why I got the job. Speaks to how um, how incredible of a broadcaster he is if he had only done one hockey game before the what has become mm-hmm. maybe the most memorable one ever. So but let's relive the, the call, the final seconds of the 1980 Miracle on Ice. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow. Up to show five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. Yeah. Still get chills. Yeah. And we weren't even born then. Like, that's just, I think that speaks to the impact that has had, not just on sports culture, but really in American culture. I mean, there was a lot of political implications with that game because the Cold War was at really one of its heights uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union, and it was on American soil, and it was after America had pulled out of the uh, summer games, which were going to be held in Moscow. And there was, you know, would the Soviet Union send a team to Lake Placid that year? And they said, yeah, we will. Like we, even if you're not sending your team to Moscow, we're we're sending ours to Lake Placid. And you know, for 
for that sort of, you know, side story on top of just how insane this game was, I don't know if we'll ever see a game have as much cultural impact as that one had. And it, it, you kind of wonder, is society in 2020 just the way we are in how everything, you know, back then you had, what, four or five TV channels, so everybody's eyes were going to mm-hmm. be on that game regardless. Now you've got hundreds and thousands of TV channels. There's so much else for people to do. You wonder if a moment like that could ever have as big of an impact, specifically from a game, as what the Miracle on Ice had. Yeah, I think you made this point when we were prepping for the show, C-Raj, about particularly in-game. We've seen in the past instances of really significant moments that happen surrounding events like this Mm -hmm. that have happened at the Olympics, but oftentimes they happen before or after, whether it is on the podium, whether it is, you know, in in another instance. So to actually have like an in-game moment like this that felt uh, so culturally significant, I think you're right. It's We're not going to see it again anytime soon. Al Michaels was on Golik and Wingo this week, and he talked about, uh, well, the first let's talk about just being able to recall the joy of that moment in Lake Placid like it was uh, recently. I'll never forget, obviously, the, the Sports Illustrated cover after yeah. they defeated the Soviets, and there's this big, wide, toothless grin from Jack O'Callaghan. <laughs> Well, I'm going to see this weekend in Las Vegas because they're bringing the whole team in for, for a reunion and an anniversary. But it was it was just pure joy. And they were falling all over each other. And the country felt the same way. And I think that had a lot to do with it. But truly, uh, you're right. In terms of, uh, of it being amateurs against professionals, it's probably the last time we'll ever see it uh, to that degree. Al, also talking about the call specifically, which – he said wasn't rehearsed or anything. It just came from his heart in that moment, but that's still resonating with people. At that point, Trey, when you go back 40 years, you might as well go back 540 years. No Internet, cable television in its infancy, no national newspaper. USA Today had not yet hit the newsstands. No social media. Uh, I like the way you put it, though, undefeatable, because it, it seems as if the the Soviets wore that uh, – way they would win games by scores of like you know four to one or whatever but it looked it always looked like it was 20 to nothing right they dominated teams and when i uttered those words uh, i was just doing it as part of the the play-by-play putting a coda on it at the end and i was lucky in that the puck came out the center ice with a few seconds to go so there was no chance for the soviets to mount a last rush and what i said really came out of my heart Oh, I mean, Al, the, one of the best storytellers in in the game. Yeah, I could hear Al Michaels tell stories of his career, but specifically of the Miracle on Ice all day long. And you mentioned he had never, or he had only called one previous hockey game before that, and it was in 1972 at the Winter. Wow! Olympics. So it was eight years between games he had called, and I mean, just for him to have that kind of moment and. I think it, obviously that moment is so memorable, but I can't think of a better sportscaster to have had that moment because Al Michaels to me is maybe the very peak in terms of like play-by-play guys on a national level that I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And being able to transcend one specific sport, yeah, he has he's so many great calls in so many different sports, mm-hmm. and you know just 
to be able to capture that moment you know, was, was incredible. We've got a lot of texts coming in on the text line, a lot of people who remember that day That's awesome. 40 years ago. Um, and then, you know, a lot of other uh, candidates, a lot of them have to do with, you know, Olympics and, and mm-hmm. you know, just national team games. Uh, the 253 says the 99 Women's World Cup with oh, Brady yeah. Chastain's goal, uh, the, the penalty kicks. Uh, they also said Carrie Strug's vault in 96. Uh, that's from the 253. Uh, 360, they say Ali versus Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially with what Muhammad Ali meant culturally at the time, you know, him being sort of this, you know, revolutionary type person, but also being the most dominant athlete of his, of his era or maybe any era. You know, there's who knows. It's impossible to say who the greatest athlete of all time is, but, you know, Muhammad Ali, you can certainly make the case for. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, Miracle on Ice Call gives me chills just like Junior Slide Home in 95. Right. Um, you know, just people sharing their memories. It's cool. I, I imagined, yeah, it would be one of those things where you remember exactly where you are, who you were watching with, what it felt like, and hearing a, those words, especially the do you believe in miracles, yes, bringing it all back. It's, yeah, it's just a, an incredible Incredible moment. Uh, 360 says, I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> right now. Um, Reunion this weekend in Las Vegas, right? So the, the, yeah. team, the team and Al Michaels for uh, for the 40th uh, anniversary. That's Jeez. going to be cool to see. Yeah. Um, 360, Michael Phelps's relay win in the 08 games. Yeah, I think, what was it? Jason Lezak pulling ahead of the French team on, like, the very final stroke and, and – securing, I think, what was the eighth gold medal for Michael Phelps in that game. Yeah, just there are so many moments like that in sports where you you remember where you were, but for those who were able to watch the Miracle on Ice, one, I guess, note about that is that the game was aired on a tape delay on the West Coast. It was aired live on the East Coast, so those West Coast viewers, you know, you kind of get catch word of it. Like, imagine that today. In 2020, with like how easily accessible information is now with the internet and all that, like having to wait for mm-hmm. a massive result like that. Like we just watched the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Imagine finding out hours after the game was over that Kansas City had won. The the benefit would not being having it would not be Twitter in that in those day and age. Just like Michaels, we played that sound of him mentioning there or wasn't even a national newspaper really that was in that circulation so that would be your one benefit but yeah it wouldn't happen see raj that there would, that wouldn't happen again this is such <laughs> a unique circumstance i feel like we should play it just one more time yeah. for people uh, on our way out here 11 seconds you've got 10 seconds the countdown going on right now morrow up to show five seconds left in the game do you believe in miracles yes Seattle Sports Saturdays with Lydia Cruz, Curtis Rogers, and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Dragons, Renegades coming up later today at CenturyLink Field, XFL action. Week three. I think we're just about 15 minutes away from kicking off week three. I think it's the, let's see here. It's the Roughnecks against... Some I forget which team they're playing today, but uh, that game's coming up at oh Roughnecks and Vipers coming up at 11 a.m. on ABC. You got Kansas versus Baylor right now, 56-53. Yes. Kansas uh, Jayhawks ahead, but 
number three versus number one. Doesn't get much better than that. It's a little really preview does. of March Madness for you. Yeah, Baylor, they beat Kansas earlier in the season in Lawrence, uh, Kansas. So they're you know maybe getting it served back to them today. Remember, the one loss that Baylor has this year. It's to the Washington Huskies, <laughs> a team that has... That is three games back of the Cougs in the Pac-12. I will take that one with pride. Oh, yeah. Beaming Don't let pride. anyone take that away from, no. from the Huskies this year. Because that's, I guess that's something to hang their hat on. They have won 24 consecutive games since then. Shout out to Baylor getting it <laughs> I done. Apparently, I mean, it's so, that to me I think is the most frustrating thing about this Husky team is that they showed their top end is beating the best team in the country. But they have also showed they just they can't they can't hang fall in the apart, and especially yeah. in the second half, that's been part of what's been so frustrating. They'll get a lead, they'll look like they have beaten a team on every front, and then the final I don't know ten minutes of the game, maybe the final twenty, they they seem to fall apart. Which, yeah, I don't who know who would have known Quade Green was the glue that held it all together, yeah. but seemed like he was. But I get, the Huskies. Back to the drawing board in 2020. Uh, maybe back to the drawing board are the CBA negotiations. They were expected to have a vote yesterday between the player reps. That didn't happen. That got postponed till Tuesday. Um, it, it does feel like there is a lot of legal jargon that gets said between the owners and the players' association. There isn't. There isn't really anything that I think would cause fans to be like, "I am so vested in all of this." Like this is. My life source of you know this week. It's like eh, it's it's just kind of it's people in suits getting together and and having these boring discussions. But really, the stake of the league or the league is the future of the league is really at stake here. And I'm not taking anything away from fans, but it also seems the fans' biggest interest is in seeing quality football. Yes, of course they care about player safety, and I would imagine players getting paid what they deserve and all of these things. But that really comes in secondary a lot of times to just the interest of, I just want to know that there's going to be quality football, football on my screen on Sundays throughout the fall. So the details sometimes I think for people, it's hard to, it's seemingly hard to get invested because also a lot of times you're talking about a quantity of money that is so beyond Mm -hmm. our comprehension, whether they talk about the shift of, $5 $5 billion over the next 10 years because players expected or part of the proposal was that they would bump from 47 to 48% of the share and then 48 point to 48.5% of the share for a 17-game season. And that's a shift in $5 billion from the owners to the players' side over the next decade. That's just an amount of money that we're like, oh, well, you know, I'm we'll, looking we'll, for a we'll small raise like at that. my job yeah. in the next two years. So sometimes it can go over your head. But there are parts of this that you will be invested, and specifically the postseason mm-hmm. proposal, I think. Yeah, that got floated out this week, uh, earlier this week, where it appears as though the NFL is going to be moving forward with adding a seventh team to the playoffs. I think that could be in place by next season in 2020, which would mean – only one team gets a first round by the second seed in each conference would have to play on wild card weekend six wild card weekend games i'm okay with that i'm all right more I'm, more football yeah and i think the biggest worry with that is you're letting in teams now that are sub 500 or right at 500 where you've got teams that are 7 and 9 or 8 and 8 that yeah. 
Yeah, that, you know, maybe just kind of got into the playoffs because they got lucky here or there. This year it would have been the Pittsburgh Steelers. So retroactively, if this were in place, it would have been the Pittsburgh Steelers and it would have been the L.A. Rams. So imagine three teams from the NFC West. Yeah. Getting into it the was playoffs. the best division in football. Sure. And I wonder what the Rams record would have been like had they played in the NFC East. Had they been in the NFC East, they probably would have been a 10-11 win team just because of how bad that division was this mm-hmm. year. Um, but you look at the Steelers, for example. They were not a good team. Even though they had what they were 8-8 eight eight or 9-7, and seven, I do not want to see any more of Mason Rudolph or Duck Hodges out as a quarterback like in a game that matters. Those two guys are just they are not good. And, and to put them out in a playoff game, that's not something I would want to watch. But – Maybe there is, you know, maybe with this playoff change, it does add more competitive games. And you wonder how it would have impacted this year's playoffs. Kansas City Chiefs would have had to been forced to play on wild card weekend rather than getting that first round bye as the number two seed in the AFC. I think, though, with all these playoff changes, you kind of wonder, like, will fans or players and owners, will any of them ever be truly satisfied with the playoff formats as they currently are? And is there really a perfect one that, you know, how a champion is determined in, in American pro sports? I think it's a great question across, across all sports. And to be honest, I always think it's good to not get everything you want. It's mm-hmm. good to be a little bit disappointed because that's just more reflective of life. Like you shouldn't, I know we're obsessed now, especially with replay that everything should be correct and perfect and fair and right. But part of the reason we love sports is there are human games and there's a human level of error. And then also the fact that you just shouldn't always get everything you want all the time because I'm sorry that you'll probably be a jerk if that's the case. I would think <laughs> if you uh, if you never face adversity. But I thought the, the football had it down pretty well six teams each conference yeah I, I didn't have any complaints with it didn't I do kind of like as Danny mentioned that you're eliminating that second buy team because usually the drop off between like the first and the second team uh, is more significant and forcing that team to play on that weekend I don't have a problem with that it gives you a lot of incentive to be that number one team but at the same time, I'm also didn't think that they needed to add more teams to it and mm. felt that the, the structure was just fine. Also, it, it juxtaposes nicely to the MLB postseason proposal that we heard floated out they a couple weeks ago. Another team yes. on top of the five that already get in from each league where baseball for the longest time, it was just two teams from each league would play in the championship series in order to get to the World Series. Then they added the division series plus the wildcard team. So then it was four teams from each league. So you had eight of the 30 for the longest time. And then it wasn't until about a decade ago where they added the fifth team playing in the wildcard. Now they're adding the sixth team. So there's a potential for 12 teams in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. There's now 14 of 32 in the NFL. There's 16 of the 32 in the NHL, and there's 16 of the 30 in the NBA mm-hmm. that make the postseason. I get that there are more dollars at stake in postseason games, and that's why they continue to add these matchups and, and continue to add on. But 
you maybe are diluting the quality of the playoffs by letting so many teams that historically would not be allowed in. Yeah, I think that supply and demand should mean something or you should still be focused on creating the best product. And that always, in America, sadly seems to, in some people's minds, mean more. Supersize, bigger, extra, (laughs) add-ons, freebies. And I would... I would subscribe to the less is more sometimes, especially when it comes to playoffs or comes to postseason. Now you get March Madness, which was just a unique thing unto itself. Uh, yeah, because the postseason, it, I mean, yeah, you win your games in the regular season, but ultimately it doesn't matter because it's all in the hands of a selection committee. Which isn't exactly objective. There's a bit of subjective rating to that system as well, mm-hmm. just like the college football playoffs. So it'll be interesting to watch this play out for for football because also if this is a this is a sticking point of a contention for players moving forward, uh, we'll see. But ah, man, sometimes less is more. That's all I'm going to say. Coming up next, the Seahawks they added Greg Olson this week as a member of the tight end room. Are they building a foundation for this team? Or are they going the stopgap route? We'll answer that question next here on Seattle Sports Saturday.